Welcome, welcome to the linen suit and plastic tie pot. I have candy in my hand. You, you can't leave me with this candy. I need you guys to hate this candy. Um, for those listening, Kevin and I had a had a Halloween party last weekend. It was at my place, so I have all the candy um, and cookies left, and I'm a insistent snacker. So I'll snack on literally anything if it's in my apartment. How how many people actually ate? at the party no one and that's my thing yes they ate the pizza and who yes. bought the candy then i didn't buy the candy um benji's been on the show so benji um one of our close friends was right that we needed more pizza my plan was to go the classic um wealthy television move where you just want to give the illusion of food i actually think i stole this from suits but you want to give the illusion of food so you have like limited food and have it always circulating um but i was like but I was like, we don't need eight pizzas. We ended up needing eight pizzas. But no one ate any of the chips, any of the candy. But now I'm eating all the candy, so I need you guys to get this out of my house. Take it to work. Yeah, but what has candy and snacks and everything? It actually wouldn't. <laughs> I thought about that. Anyways. I'm Corv. And I'm Kevin. Kev, who are we talking to today? Today we are talking to David Craig. He is a formerly Emmy-nominated TV producer. Right now, he is clinical professor of communication and journalism at USC Annenberg School. But he did his PhD at UCLA, so we'll give him a pass. Go Bruins. David is an expert in Hollywood, in social media entertainment, and he has come out with this book that's not so much social media. Uh, it's about a TV-based movie uh, in the 1980s that influenced the public opinions and the official decisions on the nuclear arm race. The book is called Apocalypse Television, and the movie in question is The Day After. You know, Kev, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, actually wrote the foreword to this book. I'm going to paraphrase a quick quote of Bob Iger's from the book. Apocalypse Television recognizes all the storytellers throughout history who have crafted narratives that help change our destiny. These include the myth makers and the marketers, the cinematic auteur and the social media creators who now have the power to tell stories to global audiences. Depending on where it is cited, either Plato or Native American proverbs stated that those who tell the stories rule the world. As captured in this book, perhaps the better phrase is, those who tell the stories may save the world. Bob Iger. I mean, if anything encapsulates our show, it's that quote. Let's get into it. Could you pronounce your full name for us? David Craig. And David, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Sure. I am a, uh, currently I'm a clinical professor at USC in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. But uh, tell my full story means going back to when I was eight years old and I sat in elementary school and um, my teachers wanted to talk to us about race, but they couldn't give us textbooks because it was the early 70s and most of the textbooks were 10 years old. And instead, they rolled in these things called film projectors and turned on these movies that aired in the classroom. And I saw what I later discovered were made for television movies that described 
the epic and extraordinary and exquisitely painful history of race relations in America in a way that I would have never learned from a textbook. And I turned to my best friend and said, that's, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Hollywood and become a teacher. So I did. About 15 years later, I wound up in Los Angeles. I pursued a career as a producer, particularly to make um, films and television that foreground social issues, identity issues, race, gender relations, issues, existential crises that we were all dealing with and continue to deal with every day with the hopes that it would reach not only huge audiences, but also make its way into classrooms. So I wound up doing that for, for 25 years, and I got to make about 30 of those projects, and almost all of them did end up going into classrooms, but they also made the networks a lot of money, and they won a lot of awards, and I had a great time um, doing that work. But at some point, uh, it became clear it was time to move on to my next passion, which was to be a professor. So I went to academia, uh, collected a few graduate degrees and became a professor of Hollywood. So I went from teaching through Hollywood to teaching about Hollywood. But over that same time period, there were a few projects that uh, lingered in my mind that I wanted to tell and figure out some way to tell about the power of entertainment to transform how we understand and make meaning in the world just as it had for me at eight years old. And that's what brought me to this book project that you guys are talking about today. Um, I, I have now spent the last 10 years now conducting research, writing books about the new forms of storytelling happening on social media. So talking about these new entrepreneurs of social media, you call them different names, influencers, creators, vloggers, gamers, streamers. In China, they're called KOLs, Wang Hong, Chu Bo. Um, these are all names to describe people who not only are using social media to make a living, but are also often using social media to tell stories and to sometimes teach. So I, uh, I've written a number of books on that subject, and at this moment, I'm a visiting scholar at Harvard in the Berkman Klein Center for Society and Technology, and I am a, in the Institute for Rebooting Social Media. You're our first USC professor between yeah. the two, because between the two of us, we have three UCLA degrees, but we'll be okay. We'll survive. It's going to be okay. My PhD um, is from UCLA. Okay, good. Yeah, that's some leverage. Um, but... Um, so you are a clinical professor of communication, and we love communication. And we believe that an essential point of communication is storytelling. What do you think is the interactions between communication and storytelling? Are they the same thing? Does one feed the other? Tell us a little bit about how you teach that. One of the first things I do in my classes um, is I have students on the first night walk right outside the classroom and conduct men on the street interviews with people asking them to define different terms. And they usually come back an hour later and realize no one defines these terms the same way. Just like art, communication, entertainment, storytelling can be in the eye of the beholder. Um, but more importantly today, um, all of those things belong in the hands of the users, meaning we all have the means to tell stories and reach and broadcast and access the entire planet and mostly. Um, so um, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do to define what communication is and how it may or may not differ from storytelling. I'll be honest, when coming from 25 years of Hollywood, 
I too thought storytelling and communication meant the same thing. I've now been um, exposed to the extraordinary breadth of scholarship and teaching in my program and in my field that um, is mind boggling. Communication touches on everything, not just um, storytelling, but how we um, make meaning of the world, how we build relationships, how we interact as human beings on this planet. Um, And increasingly, communications is about understanding the interactivity between technology and humanity, um, because now the technology has intervened into every aspect of our lives, point where we can't separate ourselves from our online and offline existence. And um, that goes beyond storytelling in that regard. For me, to be more specific, then I, I like to think of storytelling in a both a narrow and in a broad way, narrow in terms of kind of Hollywood cinematic filmmaking with three act structures or character arcs or basically narratives that have a beginning, middle and an end, even if it takes 10 episodes or 25 Marvel movies. But I also think of storytelling as a way of narrativizing our day to day life. So if you're just doing a day in school or uh, showing people how to cook your favorite recipe or discussing the state of affairs in the world, which can be really distressing. To me, this is a kind of storytelling that is more expansive, is not narrowly defined by narrative structures. And you did mention uh, you know, communication as a sort of study into the interactivity between technology and humanity. Can you tell us a little bit about what social media entertainment is? as someone who studies it. And how is that unique as a storytelling medium? Sure. So um, I've been teaching for 15 years in grad school, but increasingly my students wanted to ask me questions about these new mediums and these new producers operating across these mediums. As I mentioned, they come with many names, creators, influencers, gamers, etc. And I thought, um, if I'm going to be a good, effective teacher, I better go figure this out. And it turns out there wasn't a lot 10 years ago um, that understood what makes YouTubers and TikTokers and uh, Snappers and Twitchers in any way different or similar to filmmakers, showrunners, um, writers and directors and actors. I was quite truthfully very surprised to discover that these are critically different types of cultural producers. The biggest distinction that I can make is that whereas Hollywood is built around the idea of owning an intellectual property, a piece of content that could be monetized a million different ways from films to plush toys and theme parks, for social media and social media entertainment, these platform entrepreneurs were more interested in building online communities that in turn could be monetized dozens of ways, influencer marketing, sponsorship, podcast work, licensing, merchandising, live events. Um, So there were two, these were two very critical differences between what are still two cultural industries that rely on communication, rely on using content in different ways, but um, huge stark differences between what a creator does and what a filmmaker does. Um, So as we began to write the, uh, these books, and I I worked with some brilliant co-authors doing this research over the last 10 years, we've come to now think of this or adopt the term that many in the industry have used, which is creators. And we refer to this industry more more frequently as creator culture. That kind of Mm -hmm. puts that research over in that one category. 
but I think where we're heading next is this new book, which is in many ways going back to my core love of straightforward Hollywood legacy media storytelling and the power of that storytelling to, in this instance, arguably save the world. But yeah, for now, let's get into Apocalypse Television. Can you tell us what this book is about and what is this film, the story of this film that is trying to capture? Sure. Once upon a time, we all watched one of three broadcast networks here in the U.S. And there were people who worked at those networks who understood that with that um, amazing power came also some responsibility and accountability. And one of those was a gentleman by the name of Brandon Stoddard, who had come to be very successful at telling um, TV movies that also foreground incredibly important social and educational and historical issues. He was the father of Roots, um, and he, in a sense, became known as the father of the miniseries. Again, he ran the TV movie division and was very aware that the world was spinning towards oblivion. No exaggeration. We were um, stockpiling nuclear arms, both here in the U.S. and in the Soviet Union, at a rate that could destroy the world 10 times over. The scientists were all warning that with a hair trigger mentality that we have, we could annihilate one another in an instant, but also the repercussions would be almost the full extension or more painfully, the brutal um, survival of what's left of the human race after a nuclear attack. At that point in the early 80s, people were so terrified of this that they didn't want to talk about the prospect of nuclear war. But if you actually ask them, everyone everyone assumed that we would all be dead within five years. So Brandon said, I got to figure out some way to try to bring this issue up and do it in a way that gets people to think about it and maybe do something about it. Maybe we can reverse this trend. And, and then he came up with an idea. What if there was a nuclear attack on the America's heartland in the middle of the country? And more importantly, what happens afterwards? Um, but he was very insistent that it be also told from the ground up. It was not a war movie. It was not a Pentagon movie. It was not a Cold War movie. It was a uh, Kansas movie. It was a movie set in this space, in this world, with everyday people going about their lives, trying to make meaning in their world, trying to see their kids be happy and go on to get married and live their lives to the fullest. And then um, in a blink of an eye, the world goes completely haywire. He used whatever resources and power he had at the network to get this movie made. That's what this book is about, is the story not only of the incredible, almost surreal drama behind the scenes of the making of the movie, but the extraordinary backlash that he encountered from uh, everywhere, but most of all from the nuclear right, who had every reason to be terrified of the effect of this movie because they were convinced that the path we were on had kept us safe. And that's a legitimate claim they had. Um, and then um, spectacular twist emerged in the course of conducting research for this book from rogue publicists who got their hands on the film and released it secretly out to thousands of nuclear disarmament um, activists to um, the communications office of the White House, putting together an entire campaign to hijack 
the narrative of the movie and try to claim it was actually pro-nuclear. But the most important part of the book is about the fact that it would appear that Ronald Reagan saw the movie and along with a number of other events that transpired around that same time, came to realize that the approach he had been using towards the Soviets was not only not working, but very reckless and was possibly exacerbating the problem and expediting nuclear attack, which ultimately led to the first real uh, nuclear disarmament um, talks and fundamentally brought us back from the brink of nuclear Armageddon. Wow. It's, I mean, it's such an important and powerful story that dude really truly changed the course of mankind and exemplifying of the power of storytelling. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure there wasn't anything in the movie that wasn't a scenario that was played out somewhere already, right? It wasn't a clear scenario that that people have thought of, but it, there's something about, uh, we had a psychologist on the show, Dr. Andrea Letamendi. Uh, she teaches at UCLA, and she was talking about how you build these parasocial relationships with these characters, right? You empathize with them. You see them. You feel them. It's less 10 people died. It's here are 10 people, here are their names, here are their children, right? You can see the real world impact. And it, it changes the game when you when you put a story to something and you can emphasize with that. We wake up, um, we're born and we're told fairy tales and fables. We go to our houses of worship and we hear Bible stories and stories from the Talmud or from the Quran. These are all narratives. These are all narratives filled with characters going through journeys and experiences that wind up teaching us a lesson about the world and the meaning of the world and the way we ought to behave ethically and morally in the world. It's only when we um, decide as adults that there's something called entertainment, that we suddenly dismiss these narratives as not having some sort of extraordinary parable and allegory to our contemporary existence and, and things that we're all struggling with. We'd spent the first 18 to 22 years of our lives identifying with stories, whether they were Harry Potter, little wizards under a staircase, where they were um, aliens covered in blue paint um, living on another planet. We understood at some point in the way our brains have been organized that there was a lesson to learn that these stories had something to teach us. Um, and even if they're not explicitly about contemporary social issues or recent historical events, um, they can still deliver a message and educate um, people about moral and ethical issues. Um, so uh, that's what I think the programmers who worked in TV movies understood very well, particularly when these movies became educational vehicles that got sold to schools all over the world. But more importantly, they came from a generation that had understood that people sitting in their living rooms were more likely to tune into these stories than people paying a lot of money to go sit in a movie theater and buy a lot of popcorn. So um, it wasn't just simply that storytelling has power. Storytelling beamed into our homes has even more power in that way. Not bringing it to the future too much, but it's how I've been advocating for TikTok and how I've been advocating for Snapchat and platforms like that, where it's very easy to dismiss it as, oh, they're just doing dances on TikTok. But we had a TikTok influencer on the show very early on talking about how he's using TikTok to educate people about the financial markets. Right. If you meet people where they are and actually take these storytelling mediums seriously and understand it's just a different medium of an ancient technique and learn how to tell these 
compelling narratives, you can have a real impact. I'm trying to thread that needle right now as we speak. So when I've been teaching uh, the power of storytelling in traditional media, film and television, I describe this as uh, I use the phrase producing to power. Um, It borrows from the civil rights movement slogan, speaking truth to power. But it's the idea that in every aspect of the media industries, whether you're a filmmaker or you're a grip on a movie or you're doing PR for a talk show, you have some form of power and accountability for the way you exercise that power in those roles. And that includes, if you're lucky enough to be a producer or a program executive, the ability to commission projects or license and fund and make stories that can speak to the human condition, can educate, can raise awareness, can uplift. So uh, that's the sort of thing that I've been teaching in my classes for 15 years. It was in many ways a core principle that drove my uh, work as a producer. And now that I'm looking in this new space of creator culture and social media entertainment, I've been um, working on a project called Creators for Change. And Creators for Change is actually a term that YouTube had previously used to describe exactly what you just mentioned, that there are now tens of millions of people on these platforms that not only are figuring out a way to generate revenue from what they do on social media, but to sometimes align with and advocate for social causes, impact work, identity movements. Sometimes they can get extremely explicit about promoting political causes and progressive politics. Um, the research that I've just been doing as literally just over the past month and a half um, has been talking to people who have been very actively involved in figuring out how do we harness this media where people are making a living to also make a difference. And um, it's uh, led me to some spectacular uh, um, interviews with people who, for example, were very key to getting the United Nations to sponsor not one, not two, but six different programs in Southeast Asia to work with creators who wanted to make an impact, who wanted to to battle disinformation, to promote vaccines for COVID, who want to get very uh, aggressively involved in in, uh, the, the issues around climate change, which are directing them more direly than anyone else. Um, so the breadth of this impact work is already blowing my mind, and I'm the person who's studying it. Um, but I'm excited, hopefully, to draw a through line between what Brandon Stoddard and other producers throughout the history of Hollywood have managed to do to harness entertainment for good. And now we're seeing similar patterns happening in social media despite the fact that it's also where there's a lot of toxicity and there's also a lot of commercial Mm -hmm. interest. Um, It's important to understand that just because they're making money on these sites doesn't necessarily mean that there's no value or social value to the work that they're trying to do it. I like to think of creators as for-profit community organizers, and sometimes they partner with nonprofit community organizers to try to make the world a better place fascinating topic to study for creators right now who understand the tools, the platform they have, the environment they're in, and be able to leverage all those resources to build their communities and deliver their messages. I wonder what that was like per your investigation of the day after. How was the background, the social climate back then that cultivated this story? What allowed it to have such an amazing and profound impact. 
Well, so it's interesting to realize that there had already been, um, according to some scholars, over a thousand films, documentaries, TV episodes of all forms and genres that had attempted to foreground the peril and threat of atomic war. And in many ways, it was the very legacy of Oppenheimer that these mm -hmm. filmmakers were taking on, was to try to reverse the damage done by this spectacularly brilliant, if phenomenally dangerous technology that he had helped create. In many ways, The Day After is the sequel to the Oppenheimer movie because it brought an end to the damage or the threat that Oppenheimer spent the second half of his life trying to correct. It just so happened that in 1982, um, there had been a huge groundswell of public support for what was called the nuclear freeze. The nuclear freeze movement had taken off all over the world. As the more bombs were being built, the more people became more conscious, aware that they had to do something. And um, it was often led by uh, brilliant women who were spearheading these groups, marching onto and taking over military bases and shutting them down and blocking them from even operating. I mean, these were people putting their lives on the line and showing up literally in the millions in the middle of New York City to protest the escalation of nuclear uh, warfare. So collectively, there was this groundswell of people using broadcast television, public or private, to figure out a way to raise awareness and ring the alarm about atomic war. But the day after seemed to somehow capture everyone's imagination, fears. It was not a coincidence. There were, as I mentioned, um, all these rogue publicists who got their hands on it, who got the film into the hands of thousands of nuclear activist organizations around the country. But it was probably even more the case that those on the nuclear right who had very reasons to worry about lowering our defenses or seeking a way to reverse this began to get so concerned about the possible impact of the movie. There was a very legitimate reason to think that this could have sparked a moral panic or a terror around the country after people watched it. So there was this rising chorus of backlash against this movie to the point where the filmmakers um, were had their lives threatened. Brandon Stoddard had to move his family and got notes on his window saying this could have been a bomb. Um, it was There were some very real threats and peril to everyone involved in the making of the movie. But in the same in that same regard, it also fed more attention and more awareness of the movie so that by the time the movie aired, the movie had already appeared on the cover of every national magazine. It was featured on every news show. It was just this perfect storm of all these conditions that led to two thirds of the entire population tuning in on one night to not only watch this movie, to me, what was even more amazing is the one-hour special that aired after the movie. Ted Koppel hosted this thing called Viewpoint, and they brought in the most important public intellectuals of the day, William F. Buckley and Ellie Wiesel and Carl Sagan, former Pentagon officials and experts in nuclear war. And after this three-hour disaster movie that 
imagined what would happen if nuclear bombs hit. All of these people sat around a table and had this very civilized conversation where they debated, would it end the world or would it not? And I have to tell you, that was so much more terrifying. And the, it was easy to dismiss the three-hour movie as some fictional narrative, but then to see people of such stature sitting around debating whether or not it might not be fiction after all, that sent such a chill out in the world. And it was also the most watched news special in history because it came right after the movie. So the combination of both of those things really uh, led to this uh, long lasting impact. But most importantly, as I mentioned, the possibility that it convinced Ronald Reagan he needed to change his approach to dealing with the threat of nuclear war. Yeah, I mean, again, it's such an impactful story, right? And I, it makes me think about in current days and since what have been some of the these kind of narrativized impactful stories. I think of the West Wing's 9-11 episode. I think of uh, The Social Dilemma, which is a more recent one. Um, I think about um, some of these huge documentaries that of a climate change. But in the forward of your book, uh, you had Bob Iger write the forward, and obviously Bob Iger is one of the top network execs working today. He says, those who tell stories may save the world. How, with the cutting of cable, with shows no longer getting these huge ratings in general, what platform do people have to tell stories that change the world today? Well, I hate to uh, hearken what is an extremely painful subject, but we're all watching that happen right now um, with cable news airing literally in real time what could be the next Middle East war. Um, and if depending again how much you want to narrowly or expansively describe storytelling, these are journalists out in the field right now telling the story of a war happening in real time. And that is obviously having a huge impact, although still limited to those people like me who watch those networks compulsively because I'm a news junkie. Um, but that news and those stories are also being transmitted in real time by everyone with a cell phone in their hands. They're picking up the clips, they're telling, they're sending the news, they're sharing the information. Um, there's a tremendous reason to be concerned about a lot of the disinformation and misinformation that gets spread on social media, but I don't think there's nearly enough attention to the fact that that is where people get their knowledge and information of the world. And they are getting these stories from these heartbreaking stories of not only what happened in the wake of these horrific terrorist attacks, but also the heart-wrenching stories that we're about to witness in Gaza by the victims who had nothing to do with the terrorism, who are innocent or bystanders and collateral damage in what has been this spectacularly long series of events. Um, so I would say that those stories uh, take a different form and shape across these mediums, and it's no longer a one-night contained single narrative, three-act structure kind of story these days that are going to uh, produce such bold transformations. On the flip side, you're no longer dependent upon one person sitting in a network agreeing that this is important and this is something that needs to be told. Those gatekeepers have gone away in many ways. We now all have in the palm of our hands the ability to be Brandon Stoddard. 
And that means accepting and owning and acknowledging that with that power comes tremendous responsibility. I'm just going ahead and borrowing a Spider-Man line, um, but we all know it's true, right? Um, with great power comes great responsibility. And um, that's a, a lesson I hope that people will take away from reading this book, which is that people have the means to produce their own version of the day after. It just won't be the same. It won't be that kind of three-act structure, disaster movie, genre, trope format, but it's still the power of the medium to tell those stories, to reach broad audiences, that enlighten and educate and warn us about what could be going on in the world that we need to know about and care about. Yeah. In your book, you had this line, this says, you know, after all, we're all storytellers now, and it, it is, that, as you say, we all have the power Brent and starters had. With the platforms we have, the resources we have, what would you say are, are the qualities of an expert, uh, excellent storyteller in this age? How do we harness this power? That's a little bit of what I'm trying to get to with the current research project about Creators for Change. I want to better understand what are the best strategies and practices for people interested in aligning with various causes. I think as creators or even just uh, social media users, it's probably the first and foremost is our best interest to better understand that if this is something that matters to you, it matters to a lot of people who've been working on this issue for a long time and who have a great deal more knowledge and awareness of what matters around this issue. So I would say the first thing as a creator or a user of self, social media interested in, in raising awareness around these issues that matter to them, do a little bit of legwork. We're all master Googlers. We all know how to search for every piece of information out there, but go ahead and um, reach out to the experts, people who have put their lives and careers on the line to try to talk about these issues and see if you can first learn from them what you need to know before you then turn around and share that with the community that you've built online. There is often the case that there's a lot of creators who are very well-intentioned um, to try to go out and try to uh, raise awareness about these topics and these issues, um, but have not necessarily done their homework and um, can sometimes cause more harm than good. Um, so I think the first thing I would say is that if, if you want to also raise awareness, if you also want to educate and inform the world, find the people who understand these things and these topics more clearly, who studied it and worked on it for a long time before you just take it upon yourself to put it out there. For our closing segment, we have this segment called Suspenders. Uh, it's where we ask you a random question that's unrelated to anything. You can give us any answer you feel like. Question of the day is, would you have an AI created of yourself? If you like, explain why. Curiously enough, in 10 days, I'm producing a workshop about generative AI. So it's actually a subject that's uh, <laughs> been top of mind. Uh, I absolutely uh, would use AI if I knew that I could also ensure that it was able to uh, use knowledge that was reputable. A lot of AI is built from data that exists out in the world already, which is both makes it much more informed than even the human mind could be, but is also likely to also replicate a lot of the same biases and discrimination and intolerance 
that is also part of the human experience and especially in online spaces. So if I knew that I could build an AI that was trained on maybe the best versions of myself and not the otherwise exquisitely flawed human being that all of us are, um, I would absolutely embrace it and I would harness it, especially if I knew that it could result in making the world a better place. That's amazing. Yeah, we've been having this debate with meta AIs coming out and all these creators, you know, creating an AI version of the self, if whether or not creating that version um, is going to dilute their brand or how is that really giving you an extra connection? So it's it's a really interesting debate, especially with all the stories around AI, like Terminator, whatnot. It's a really interesting debate on how people are leveraging or pulling back. Well, I'll just mention one thing. I'll leave. Maybe this is a good way to go out is um, there's a reason why um, there are so many incredible shows on Netflix like Black Mirror. And that's because science fiction has always relied on a dystopian account of the way technology could work in the world because all drama needs conflict and dystopian drama is the greatest conflict of all. But there's another reason why you also won't see a series called White Mirror. You're not likely to see a lot of really engaging, interesting shows about how great AI has managed to make the world a better place. Um, so it just does not lend itself to the sort of narrative storytelling that we all have grown up to care about and love. There's no character arc in those scenarios, whereas someone fighting up against the perils and exploitation and abuses of technology that's guaranteed audience. You're going to get people to tune in every single time, but um, getting them to show up and champion and celebrate the possibilities of technology. Um, it's just boring. You're not going to get white mirror. So um, that's uh, just a cautionary tale here to think about in the way our brains are wired to find stories that have conflict. That means dystopian science fiction. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the cool and amazing insights we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week, we talked to David Craig, who's writing a book on one of the most impactful stories of the cable era. Yeah, and we covered such a wide range of storytelling mediums all the way from old age TV to social media storytelling in the modern day. And one of the most profound points we got from this conversation is how this film, the day after, one of the many reasons why it's able to touch its audience so deeply is the fact that the creators made a choice to bring this movie to TV rather than cinema. And that made a difference because it is told from the everyday family angle. And when you are sitting in your own living room watching your TV about a family not much different from yours, they're in their living room watching TV as well. That connects with you more personally uh, than if you're going into a movie theater, you bought the ticket, you're sitting in the side of the theater where you know it's less... Uh, real is more of a fictional narrative you know that drills down to the importance of understanding your audience where you want how you want them to consume the story uh, what are the best ways to touch them knowing where your audience is 
is as important as knowing who your audience is. Knowing how to engage them in those environments is essential, right? And, you know, this goes back to something else that we talked about with David on the show was the power of new technologies and the speed at which people dismiss new technologies as forms of storytelling. Like, look at how long people dismissed TV for such a long time in our recent history. Big actors wouldn't do TV. Our tours or artists wouldn't do TV. It was seen as kind of this lesser than art form. Until peak TV, until we're in this world where now some of the most, not only expensive, but some of the most artistic and impactful viewing experiences happen in our homes, happen through TV. And I think it's the same thing we see now with YouTube and social media and these new forms of storytelling that if you dismiss them, you're gonna miss them, right? The people who take these forms seriously and don't just try to fit old forms into them, but actually try to program for those forms have the power to unlock really powerful storytelling. Yeah, so Douglas Adams, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, has this really famous quote and goes something like, uh, if this technology is there when you were born, then you take it for granted. If it's emerging uh, as you were growing up and young, then it's something you can aspire to and embrace and have a good career in it. And then as you get older, when the new technology comes up, that's uh, just unacceptable to you. And you try to dismiss it, reject it. It's going to ruin the society. And I, as I say this, I'm also reminding myself as well, because I am one of those people who also tend to dismiss uh, new technology or be skeptical of them as they come out. A healthy amount of skepticism should exist, but also be mindful that there are really brilliant storytellers trying to utilize these resources and bring you great content. Don't deter what's potentially helpful for your growth just because they are showing up on this platform that you dismiss. And this is a great lead in to reemphasize a great point that David made during Suspenders, actually. Think about how many stories you consume about technology threatening the future of humanity. Those are the flashiest headlines. Those are the most exciting yeah. clicks on the internet. Yeah. And there's a very fundamental uh, storytelling lesson there because with every good story, you need a good conflict. And those are the stories that have that conflict. It's much harder to have a good conflict surrounding technology when you try to tell a story where technology helps people. Uh, it's much easier when technology is that conflict or creates that conflict. So that's something to keep in mind as we're, you know, once again, seeing technologies coming up to the scene and people are talking all about it. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you listen. Leave us a comment or view to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. I love that you put in that uh, hitchhiker's quote. I mean, like, um, I just found it's funny. You just really want the audience to know that we're currently reading Hitchhikers and 
I'm on book two and you on book four somehow. I don't know how that's possible, but yeah, you said it. I didn't say it. Oh yeah, I, I feel like you wanted me to say it. I could tell in that moment you're like, why hasn't he mentioned well. how ahead I am? Anyways, thank you for listening. We love you. We appreciate you, and have a good one.